Yeah, to, to follow him. You see, at some point, seekers have to move beyond come and see. It's, it's what the psalmist describes as taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. You understand that's an invitation to check out God's nature for yourself. But the call of those who would become Jesus' disciples is to follow him. The initial general call that the disciples receive comes before Simon Peter's mother-in-law is healed. Remember, in an inquirer phase of following, the inquirer controls the process, right? You do the checking out. You control the pace of learning, the development of relationship. But for discipleship to take place, seekers must become the submitted. Jesus calls disciples to follow him, which implies their lives are being yielded to him. There's a line between see for yourself and following that must be crossed. To become a disciple is to enter a process of ever-growing yielding to Jesus Christ. To become a disciple, Jesus must control the pace and the place of growth. Now, Luke recounts this morning's defining call after that healing of of Simon's mother-in-law. So look what the four disciples are doing as the story begins. Jesus is teaching the gathered crowd by the edge of the Sea of Galilee, the, the Lake Gennesaret. He spots two fishing boats, their crews cleaning the nets. Those crews are Simon and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John, the sons of Zebedee. They've returned to pursuing their livelihoods. Remember, they've been called to follow, but they're back at work. In times of transition, the temptation is always to return to what we know best, to the comfortable, to the familiar, even when the comfortable and familiar aren't the best. Now, Jesus asked them to do something for him. Right? He steps into Peter's boat and asks him to put out a little. Put out a little into the lake so that he can teach in this great press of folks who have come to learn from him. So what does this say about how committed, how all in, Simon and Andrew and James and John are in their following of Jesus in this point in time. And by comparison, what does all in look like? Well, let me give you two examples. One from the book of Acts. This passage describes Peter and John after the day of Pentecost, after they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, after Jesus' resurrection. And they've been preaching and teaching in the temple. And and they've taken on the the rulers and the authorities. And the text in 4.13 says, Now when they, the rulers and the authorities, saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed. And their only answer to who they were, to how they were teaching, to the authority with which they taught, 
to the power with which they worked was this. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. When you're all in, your following has taken on a character and nature that isn't yours. It's that of Jesus Christ. It looks like this. One of my really good friends spent years puttering around the edges of Christian community, sort of following Jesus, until his Simon moment came. The difference in his life between following and sort of following was nothing short of stunning. He went from casual convenience following of Christ to smuggling Bibles into the former Soviet Union at a time when to do that was to risk your very life. He'd been a disinterested student. He became a straight-A student focused on gaining admittance to medical school. Why? Well, he did that so that he could become a doctor and offer healing to bodies in second and third world countries. All of that to open the door to share Jesus Christ with those he treated and through Christ to heal souls. His experience of Jesus Christ claimed and changed the trajectory of his life. Has there been a moment in your following of Jesus Christ when it shifted from casual to serious? What caused that shift for you? And if that shift hasn't happened, why not do what Peter and Andrew and James and John did that morning? And take a step. Take a step in faith. Put out a little from the land. You see, as Jesus is teaching and the crowd is pressing in on him ever more closely, he spies the boats belonging to the four partners in Zebedee's fishing business, as was the practice in that day. The crews and their boats went out at night to fish. At daybreak, they returned to process their catch if they had one, to clean and repair their nets, to service their gear in preparation for the next day's work. Jesus steps into one of the boats and asks Peter to push out into the water a bit to gain space from the crowd. Now, note Simon and Andrew's first uh, their, their response to this first request, put out a little from the land. Their response is immediate. Their obedience was unstinting. After all, they'd started the process of getting to know Jesus, right? And so, even though they may have felt a little put out, they were tired. It had been a long day. They obeyed. The text tells us next that Jesus sat and taught another indication of his authority since Jewish rabbis sat to teach. Then Jesus presents a telling demand. Put out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Do you hear it? It's imperative. This is a defining moment. Much, maybe everything is on the line here for these four partners. Simon's response speaks volume. It tells you exactly where he and they are. He's tired and frustrated from fruitless work. Fishing is hard, trying work. And they've come up empty. 
Simon says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Nothing. But at your word, I'll lay down the nets. What does that say about their understanding of Jesus? They may not know him intimately yet, right? But did you hear how Simon addresses him? Master. So what have they begun to recognize about Jesus? What have they begun to recognize? Yeah. He has authority. Like no one else has authority. At your word, right? And Jesus has already spoken. At your word, we'll do it. And they do. And they do. And, 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 and I think it's, it's a stunning moment in the story because as the episode begins, neither Simon nor any of the others have any idea at all how radically their lives are going to change because they took a step of obedience and then that opened the door to a much bigger step of obedience. It's precisely as they trust and obey in the small things that the door is open to something more. It's in the midst of the daily demands of work and family and life that obedient trust in God's sovereign authority opens the door to God's appearance and work in ways that utterly change the trajectory of their lives, the trajectory of their day, for sure. God comes to Simon Peter, to Andrew, to James and John, In the midst of their failure, remember, they're professional fishermen. They know it. They've been doing it, right? And what have they caught? Nothing. Zip, zilch, nada, nothing. He comes to them in the midst of their failure and uses that failure to prepare them for his call, for his mission. They take a step and obey. That simple step opens the door to more. They take another step. And God is revealed in a way they couldn't possibly have imagined minutes before. It seems almost overly simplistic. But the way we discover God's will for your and my future is to do what we know to be the will of God right now. Put out a little from the land. Put out into the deep. Let down your nets. Simon takes a step in trusting obedience. That leads to another step, another stretch of his faith. Suddenly, the deep water isn't that which lies beneath the bottom of the boat. The deep water is nets bursting with fish. The deep water is both boats filled to the gunnels with finny life. Filled to the point where they're about to sink. Simon has every dream he ever had for securing himself by what he has blown up. Because now he knows that he stands in the presence of the Holy One of Israel and is undone. After all, who but God could make what just happened happen? Right? You understand, for good Jewish boys... 
for any one part of the family of Israel, the house of Israel, all of Israel knew that when sinful people came fully into the presence of an utterly holy and righteous God, what happens? You die. You're toast. Right? Sin can't survive in the presence of utter purity. As we learned last week and from Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, from Jeremiah 1, 1 through 10, when we come into God's presence, we see ourselves as we really are, and that glimpse is devastating. Simon asked Jesus to depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He knows in this moment who he is a sinner. Unworthy. It's crystal clear to him. And so he asked Jesus to do the very thing he doesn't want him to do. To leave Simon's presence. He doesn't want it because the two pairs of brothers have been searching for the Messiah. The problem is, the God they find, the Messiah they meet, is much, much more than they bargained on. More than they could ask. More than they could imagine. Following is no longer safe. When I heard the call of Jesus Christ in high school, I was all in. I shared my newfound faith with friends. It was the first thing I did after I received Christ as my Lord and Savior. I then made new friends so I could share my Lord and Savior with them. Given the support of the adults who invested in me, of, of, of friends who encouraged my following of Jesus Christ, of a, a study and prayer accountability group, of the delight of my parents, the endorsement of my church, following Jesus was easy. My faith and following hadn't been tested. Suddenly, I was in college, and those support networks were no longer there. And I hadn't established the practices of prayer, study, worship, service, and immersion in accountable relationships that would sustain my following of Jesus Christ, even when the following was costly. Bit by bit, my following became more and more casual. It eroded. It was present when it was convenient, but absent when it proved inconvenient. And let me tell you, there were plenty of times during my freshman year and early into my sophomore year when following Jesus was markedly inconvenient. I had to decide whose approval mattered more to me, my friends or God's. It took a Simon moment when I was again made painfully aware of my sinfulness and of God's purity, sovereignty, grace, and love for that to deepen my relationship, my following to grow, for, for my heart to be yielded and, 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 and my life submitted to God. It was that encounter that set my discipleship on a, on a dedicated and sustained, sustainable path. This business of following isn't easy. Now, there's another surprising portion to this story. Jesus seems to ignore Peter's shaken and rather desperate confession. Did you notice that? 
He kind of brushes him off. What does he see in Peter that Peter doesn't see in himself? Jesus looks at Peter and sees what can be by God's grace and through God's power. That's why I love the next part of this story. Just when the brothers are shattered by God's presence, Jesus says the unthinkable. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Are you kidding me? I've just seen God. I know I'm about to die. How can I not be afraid? Peter, Andrew, James, and John have discovered God is dangerous. And this business of following God is going to take them places they never imagined. I want to read you just a little bit of these words from Mark Buchanan. He talks about it in a book called Your God is Too Safe. He says, the safe God asks nothing of us. And gives nothing to us. He never drives us to our knees in hungry, desperate prayer. And never sets us on our feet in fierce, fixed determination. He never makes us bold to dance. The safe God never whispers in our ear anything but greeting card slogans. And certainly never asks that we embarrass ourselves by shouting out from the rooftops. He doesn't make us a kingdom of priests. A safe God inspires neither awe nor worship nor sacrifice. In in C.S. Lewis' Narnia Chronicle, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Buchanan goes on and says that children, he reminds us that Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund enter Narnia through a wardrobe in their uncle's home. Edmund has already given allegiance to the witch. He's snuck off um, to join ranks with her. The other three children go to the home of the beavers, a wary but hospitable pair. Mr. and Ms. Beaver tell the children that they'll take them to see the king, Aslan. Lucy asks, is is he a man? Aslan a man, Mr. Beaver said sternly. Certainly not, I tell you. He's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Ms. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Ms. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is dangerous, but he's good. He loves his children, even his lost ones. Jesus meets Simon and the others in this moment with comfort, reassurance, and grace, especially grace because he commissions them as partners in his and his father's work. How did Jesus say it? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Or in this case, from now on, you'll be catching men. Jesus is about to ask Simon and the others to walk away from it all. 
the record catch, the familiar, the safe, and to commit to a new life work that's going to take them into deeper waters than they ever dreamed existed. God knows there are abundant reasons for Simon and the others to doubt. Look at what they learn when they obey. They see God revealed in a way that's meaningful to them. They're fishermen. God manifests his presence, power, and purpose with fish. Jesus speaks to them in a language they understand and know. They learn humility as as they stand before a holy, pure, righteous, and sovereign God. I mean, after all, this is their vocation. They're professionals, and they can't catch fish. But God, the maker of all fish, can. They relearn their place in the scheme of things. They understand that what God wills, what God commands, matters. While it may not seem to make sense in the moment, it always makes absolute and perfect sense in the end. They discover that their obedience, while costly in the here and now, is always rewarded and fruitful, both now and in the hereafter. God blesses and honors obedience in large ways and small. Jesus' words, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch, contain both demand and promise. The demand, trust God when everything argues against it. The promise, when you do it, there'll be a catch. Remember, it's God's lake. The fish are always there, even when the lake seemed empty. And John never forgot this, which is why this morning's memory verse is, The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Lord abides forever. Actually, that's not the memory verse. Sorry about that. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of the Lord abides forever. 1 John 2:17. The disciples are amazed to find that God works in, with, and through imperfect people in miraculous ways. All it requires from us is grateful, obedient submission to his leadership. Put out a little. Let down your. Right? Fruitfulness is contingent on our obedience coupled with God's presence and partnership. One step of trust and then another, and suddenly they're no longer simple fishermen. They're friends, witnesses, disciple makers, ambassadors, God's own people, evangelists, apostles, shepherds, teachers, prophets, and more as they fulfill God's calling. They're constantly encouraged to realize that part of the promise is that the God who calls them will always be with them. Will never fail or forsake them. When they step out in faith, which is why in Hebrews there's an amazing litany beginning in chapter 11, right? A litany of heroes in faith. And, 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 and we remember those, but it's, it's even more extensive than the writer of Hebrews recounted. I mean... Noah, having taken to heart the shocking power and purpose of God's word, which Simon recounts to us this morning as at your word, 
I'll put down the nets. And Jesus has given his word. So, so in this amazing litany of folks of faith, Noah, at God's word, builds an ark. Abraham, at God's word, departs from home for a promised land. Joshua, at God's word, circled fortress Jericho multiple times to God's glory. Gideon, at God's word, sends thousands home and conquers with 300. My Simon moment came a few months into my sophomore year at Wake Forest. A friend who had absolutely no idea I'd been involved with young life in high school approached me. He asked me to help him with a club he led. I went once because he was my friend. And God showed up in the going. My heart broke for the kids I met there. I remembered where my buddies and I had been in high school when God showed up for us. I remembered the role men and women had played, had had in that revelatory moment for me. Jesus' words came to mind, and this is our memory verse, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. John 12, 26. Say it with me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. I claim to serve Jesus. Was I going to follow him into the local high school? I mean, I was... I was over my head and knew it. But Sam kept nagging me and nagging me, and I kept going. And then, of all things, he asked me to give a talk. What? You're kidding me. I turned him down. I knew how empty and fruitless my life had been for the past 18 months. I knew how feeble my following of Jesus was at that point. But he persisted and persisted and persisted, saying that God had laid it on his heart. And I said yes. Not because I heard God's calling, but because I needed Sam's approval. In my dorm room late that night, devoid of a message to give two days later, I came face to face with a perfectly holy and utterly sovereign God who called me to trust him, to put out into the deep, and to let down my nets. Sam became one of many remarkable men and women whom God used at critical moments to change the trajectory of my life. It all began with one step of trust and then another. A bit of obedience and a bit more. And here we are. God's will is good because He is. It's decidedly uncomfortable and unpredictable because God's wisdom and ways aren't ours. His will takes us into deep water far over our heads 
so that we'll learn to trust him always. And when we follow, it's always fruitful and productive, even when he reaches out to us in our deepest desert times and places. So where is God calling you this morning? To put out in the deep. To put down your nets for a catch. Because he's going to take you into deep, tough waters. Where the undertow is fierce, but fear not, for he is there with you. In the end, for those of us who claim to follow Jesus Christ, there is one and only one mission. It's time to go fishing. It's time to follow.